I'm with Dr. Maruthi Njaya from Stanford University. Prithvi, welcome to Retina Synthesis. Thanks, Dr. Polifido. It's a real honor to be here today. Uh, we're going to talk about radiation retinopathy today. And just to start off with the base, basics, what is radiation retinopathy? Radiation retinopathy is um, the bane of the existence of uh, ocular oncologists who've been trying to preserve eyes uh, with radiation therapy, uh, but is a major cause of vision loss for our patients. Uh, essentially, it's a, a microvascular angiopathy similar to diabetes, um, but I say it's like diabetes on a major Slurpee. It's like a it's a very a aggressive abbreviated time course of microvascular changes that result in what we see in diabetics. So um, macular edema, um, non-proliferative retinopathy, or in worst cases, uh, proliferative disease. And we also have this component of radiation optic neuropathy that can also lead to vision loss. And in fact, you know, we, we tell patients about 40% uh, of them won't be able to read the big headlines in a newspaper in about three years. And this is data from back in the COM study, uh, but studies have shown it's even higher than that. So it's a significant cause of vision loss in these eyes that we're saving from a nucleation, um, but it can be quite morbid for our patients. What's the uh, incubation time for radiation retinopathy? Average about two years. So it doesn't start um, right after surgery. Um, usually they do okay. There's a reserve that's built into the vasculature um, but as the radiation has taken effect, that reserve is lost, pericytes are gone. Um, and then you deal with not only direct radiation damage to the area of the tumor, but also the secondary effect of, um, of vascular mediators that then uh, cause occlusive disease, vascular breakdown, and then all the side effects. So average about two years um, just doesn't happen immediately. We're familiar with radiation maculopathy, but what's happening in the periphery? Good question. Um, similar to a diabetic, actually, So, it, um, but, but it's slightly geographically skewed to where the tumor is located. So, you know, if your tumor is located, you know, nasally, there'll be an area directly in the line of fire from where the radiation was delivered, whether it's plaque radiation or proton therapy. So there, there'll be local there'll be local damage to the blood vessels, and then an area distal to it. So we did a study um, with Paula Peason um, and Sumit Sharma that looked at wide-angle fluorescein um, angiography, and we could quantitate areas of of uh, non-perfusion that were obviously in the bed of the tumor, but even more distally. And then you start getting this drop, this kind of fallout effect from like where the tumor is located to the areas adjacent to it and further adjacent to it. And then you start seeing that drop off continue. So over time, you can map it like you can do with diabetes where there'll be progressive peripheral dropout of vasculature, but it's still, it starts at that epicenter of the tumor itself. So unlike diabetes where the entire eye can have non-perfusion, you know, we see progressive uh, non-perfusion emanating from the source of the tumor bed and then progressing. So I think that there's global ischemia. It's just more concentrated. And um, it's not just retinal, it's choroidal as well. Like everything gets uh, gets damaged. So um, have there been studies employing widespread wide field angiography? Um, you, there have, you get yep. capillary non-perfusion. 
We do, um, but it's really, um, it's more profound than what we see in diabetes um, in that it's not this microvascular um, occlusions that you see kind of throughout. Um, it tends to be, you know, a medium and sometimes large size vessels that just, you know, just drop out and get lost. And then there's just downstream lack of perfusion. So um, you can see the same diabetic changes um, you know, at the outer edges of that, but then it kind of quickly goes to an occlusive process. Um, so it's a little bit more dramatic than what you see in diabetes in most cases. I remember seeing patients with cranial radiation that develop radiation retinopathy. Have you encountered many of those patients? Yeah, so um, I think a lot of those patients are ones that had radiation that kind of where the eye was in the field. So um, whether it's something that's going transphenoidal through the sinus and you're treating there, or um, a, maybe a, um, a, a lack of sensitivity to the delicacy of the eye and the way the radiation was planned. So we can clearly see that um, in those patients. I feel like I see that less and less. A lot of patients now when they're getting treatment for their um, CNS metastases are getting very focal therapies like CyberKnife or proton beam. So they're not having to use kind of these high doses of just generalized radiation. It's like very focused. So I think that the radiation oncologists are, are very um, cautious and aware of the effects in the eye. So I don't see it as much as I used to, but there's definitely patients out there. So what's the history of therapy for radiation retinopathy? So I, I think it mimics the, the therapies that we see in diabetic disease because it's a, you know, it's a similar phenotype that uh, ends up. And um, the first therapies ended up just being observation, of course, followed by a laser treatment. So there would be focal laser done in the macula um, with an ability to maybe reduce macular thickening, um, but inability to halt vision loss. Um, there were concepts of uh, dealing with areas of non-perfusion, probably even before um, you know, what we think of in diabetic therapy, but more like what we'd seen in vein occlusion, where it would be sectoral PRP, the thought being to prevent proliferative disease more than anything else. Um, but no studies correlated that, that scatter laser in the periphery with uh, improvement in macular edema or vision per se. It was just to prevent vitreous hemorrhage and other complications. And then as the anti-VEGF train you know, took off, I think that there was slow adaptation um, because of the fear of injecting needles um, you know, and, and medicines into eyes with cancers. So it took a little while compared to you know, other indications for use of anti-VEGF for um, radiation retinopathy. But um, there have been several centers, uh, Paul Finger in New York, Carol Shields um, at, at Wills and, uh, and others that began using um, anti-VEGF therapies to treat the, the manifestations of radiation retinopathy where you'd see you know, uh, OCT-based widespread you know, macular edema uh, and then also to treat um, neovascular complications. So um, the anti-VEGF roles, I think, um, were more prominent uh, as an early therapeutic. And at the same time, steroids were utilized because that was available. And um, there just weren't the lasting ability to prevent 
neovascular disease as with the anti-VEGF agents. Um, so I think that it's been following that, that progression. And now we've had some studies that have really looked at strategies on how to either um, prevent, delay, or eliminate radiation retinopathy that have uh, happened over the past uh, six to eight years that have kind of changed the landscape in, in how we think about treatment. So you've been innovative in this area and using brolicizumab as a therapeutic agent. So how has that been going? Uh, many measures. So, um, you know, we've, we've kind of employed a strategy where we try to um, take our high-risk patients and treat them uh, prophylactically with anti-VEGF treatment, usually bevacizumab, uh, given at the time of uh, radiation uh, plaque removal, and then at four month at four month intervals, as we're seeing them in the clinic, to try to um, really reduce that that VEGF drive that we know is going to be increasing over time, and trying to catch it so that at that two year mark where we know things should be happening, that we're either kind of pushing that that timeline out further or not. Um, so we've been um, ha we've had patients where we've then gone to you know weekly dosing. Uh, sorry, monthly dosing, and then adding steroids on top of it, trying to get samples to use off-label therapeutics, uh, including um, aflibercept um, or um, uh, ranibizumab. And then we recently had a patient that we shared um, with Nathan Steinley, who was just was young, motivated, but refractory to uh, very aggressive treatments that we um, attempted uh, intravitreal brolicizumab um, as an off-label uh, treatment. And um, it remarkably was a great drying agent for um, widespread macular edema. So I think that that was um, an indication that maybe some of the therapeutics that are coming down the line may actually be more effective than uh, what we have been using previously. Because um, I mentioned this is really, I feel it's a more aggressive drive that we see in radiation retinopathy um, than we see in diabetes, or at least um, you know, equal time points or equal um, amount of uh, retinopathy changes. I just feel that the macular edema is much more resistant. Um, so other options are always welcome. So before we go back to brolicizumab, what's the evidence that VEGF is upregulated in these eyes? So it goes back to histology studies um, that were done um, by one of my mentors, actually John Hungerford in London, where uh, enucleated eyes uh, had vitreous sampled. Um, and in the early days of being able to calculate VEGF levels were found to be uh, markedly elevated in these eyes. Um, there have been subsequent studies uh, looking at aqueous and, and other uh, parameters that we know that melanoma eyes do have higher levels of uh, native expression of VEGF. Now that could be because the tumor itself is causing ischemia. It could be from retinal detachment that's causing um, that ischemia. It's, um, it's unclear. Um, there have not been as many quantitative studies that I think are definitive um, that show um, a clear correlation with stage of of uh, radiation retinopathy and the levels of VEGF, but um, I, you know, my my guess is that they're going to be at the you know between the diabetes and the vein occlusion levels overall. But we don't use that as a quantitative measure, so that really hasn't been a part of the um, 
uh, of the, uh, the knowledge base, quite honestly. So what's the story about brolicizumab going forward? So um, right now, you know, it's still an off-label indication. I think that in eyes that um, don't uh, respond to therapies, I think that I'm always going to be interested in, um, in finding another avenue. So we've been continuing to treat selected patients with brolicizumab. You know, we're cautious um, with the, the safety signals that have been seen before. Um, but we're very cognizant that brolicizumab is a is a really strong drying agent. So, um, in some ways, it you know these are high risk eyes to begin with. Um, so sometimes you know it may be okay to swing for the fences um, at least with that agent. And um, there may be other agents that could be as effective, um, which uh, you know are being explored. How many patients with choroidal melanoma are you treating with pro prophylactic bevacizumab? So um, I, I, I will try to treat as many as I can with it. So I think currently I'd probably say, you know, it's offered to 100% and I'm probably treating 80%. And the ones that I'm not treating are those that I feel, um, again, trying to be the, the, uh, uh, the, the seeing, and seeing into the future are ones that maybe have small tumors or very peripheral tumors or ones that I don't feel are going to be as high risk. So anterior lesions or ciliary body tumors. But I think anything that's um, that's a larger lesion, thicker lesion, but anything clearly coming close to the macula, we know that um, especially with the iodine plaques that we use these days, as, as good as they are in um, confining that radiation dose, um, there is going to be some effect. And then I'll also take into account, you know, age of the patient uh, and their ability and willingness to travel and, and get the injections. But I think the younger patients are the ones that you have to fight the hardest for because they have a longer latency of time that they're going to, you know, have to be dealing with the, the loss of vision from this. So if we can treat them and, you know, and therapies improve and they don't develop metastatic disease, it's almost like you've got to you got to go full court. So you're kind of uh, putting a, a, um, uh, an 80-year-old regimen, 80-year-old patient's regimen for AMD onto a you know, 30 or 40-year-old patient with regular injections. Um, but if they can you know, maintain vision, it means a lot to them. Well, radiation retinopathy has been the most challenging maculopathy in terms of treatment. And your work is exciting. And it, uh, I, I hope think you continue it. Yeah, well, I think we're trying, and, and this is where the DRCR um, net, I think, has really kind of stepped up to the plate to um, you know allow this to be studied now in a much broader, um, in, in a much broader and more methodologic way. I think um, you know we hats off to my colleagues in ocular oncology and retina who've been trying to treat um, radiation retinopathy with uh, with uh, innovative treatments and, and regimens. But you know these are rare. This is a rare disease still, and um, the number of patients are going to be hard to quantify. Um, but you know we're not going to be able to get on-label treatments unless we have a good collaborative way to do it. So, so is the network organizing a, a trial? They are actually. So um, you know Dan Martin is the network chair, and uh, he's uh, taken a great interest in ocular oncology. So it's uh, it couldn't make me uh, happier. The protocol is called AL, and it's a, a study looking at a um, prevention strategy for radiation retinopathy that's comparing uh, three arms, uh, so 600 patients, uh, adults that have um, uh, plaque therapy for treating uveal melanoma, 
these melanomas uh, can't touch the optic nerve or be directly uh, under the fovea. But there's three arms to the study. One is a, um, is a sham arm, so it'll be our observation, natural history arm. Uh, one arm is intravitreal furisimab, uh, which is the plan, and that would be given every three months. And the second is a uh, fluocinolone acetonide um, insert, the alluvian implant, that would be given um, about every 24 months. And then this will kind of be in a preventative manner. You're treating, you're giving to them at the time of treatment. And then we're watching to see the need for um, additional treatments and active retinopathy formation. But then when they develop active retinopathy, then you know, we have crossovers that's gonna allow for us to try to decipher what's going to be you know, a good strategy um, for these patients going forward. And, and the natural history arm is actually kind of interesting. It's a sham treatment, but we're going to see, you know, what happens as patients develop uh, retinopathy and what can rescue those patients. So um, this is also, it, it's, it's a bold um, study design because we're using a relatively new drug, verisimab, um, for treating radiation retinopathy um, when it really doesn't have a track record for it. But um, again, I think we're looking for um, you know, another mechanism of action other than just VEGF inhibition um, or stronger VEGF inhibition, which may be, um, this may fit the bill. And quite honestly, I think we're looking for a treatment that may allow for on-label approval if successful. And we're talking a whole study to be done and, and data to be analyzed, but um, I think that there is, um, there is a pathway that we could see that if this trial were successful, um, maybe this could be then FDA labeled, maybe, for radiation retinopathy, which would give other options for our patients. This is truly exciting, really exciting. It's a long time coming, and maybe just the time is right. So let's see what happens. Well, listen, thanks so much, Prithvi, for your time and for a wonderful summary of the past, present, and future of radiation retinopathy. Thanks so much. Thank you.